Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. Even if you're perfectly healthy and your kids are perfectly healthy, I don't believe people are meant to do this, you know, two parents plus kids. It's too few people. I mean, to say nothing of one parent plus kids. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Journalist Ezra Klein explores a wide-ranging beat on his podcast and in his column at The New York Times. He's interested in how policy systems interact with Americans' political identities and how all that trickles down in each of our lives. And like many of us, the past few years have been characterized by a lot of upheaval in his life. The year before the pandemic, he and his wife had moved across the country from Washington, D.C. to the San Francisco Bay Area. And what kicks off then is a four- to five-year period, depending on how you count it where my partner got very sick in very mysterious ways, which interacted with pregnancy, with two pregnancies, in in fundamentally disastrous ways. Their workplaces shut down. They didn't have family locally. And earlier this year, they decided they couldn't stay. It really was because that was just too hard. It was too hard to be there with young kids and one of us being sick without family support, without uh, a a kind of deeper, more connected community. There's a lot I love about California, but it wasn't, it did not work well enough for the entire family. And they moved to New York City. Not a place I think of when I think, how do I add more ease to my life? But it worked for both his job and his wife's job, and there was more extended family nearby. You know, everybody's life is complicated. (laughs) I think one thing I'll be honest, I'm uncomfortable even talking about this with you. And one reason I'm uncomfortable talking about all these decisions through the lens of my experience of them. And one reason I also want to be careful about how much of this story I'm the one telling is that they make it sound like I'm the protagonist of all of it. But the truth of the, the like the beautiful truth of being in a marriage, of being in a family, is that it's not a, you know, there's no one protagonist. That's the thing about being a family, he told me. 
your story is made up of a lot of different people's needs. I'm a listener to Ezra's podcast, The Ezra Klein Show, and I've picked up on how he's been wrestling with some of these big transitions. He'll offer asides about how it doesn't feel like the architecture of American life sufficiently supports families of young kids. Or he'll wonder out loud about the big forces undermining our ability to live in community and what makes us feel less alone. He told me as they considered where to move, Ezra realized his sense of community is less about place and more about where his people are gathered. Like his hometown, it's not somewhere he ever felt particularly rooted. So I grew up in Irvine, which is very suburban. Uh, both of my parents uh, moved there in, as adults uh, and, and well into their adulthood. My father is a Brazilian immigrant. My immediate and extended family in the United States is very small. And Irvine has, well, I don't want to speak for suburbs, but my experience of it was not highly communal. You know, very car-oriented, very single-family home-oriented. And so it's actually a real delight of being in Washington, D.C., which is, I think, a place really well-built for community, where the built environment does foster it, where when I was there, I was part of its dominant industry, so to speak. I mean, people often say as a way of maligning Washington that it's a one-company town. But if you're, you're part of the company, that can actually be quite wonderful because there are so many people who do something of relevance to you or you of relevance to them, and it creates a lot of space in which to, to get to know people. Ezra arrived in Washington at 21, just after graduating from UCLA. He lived there for 13 years. So Washington, and living there as I did for a long time, was the first place I felt embedded in a deep and wide community. And that, that was a really beautiful feeling. And did you immediately move into a housing situation where you were living with other people? Yeah, though not people I knew. So I, I immediately moved into a housing situation with somebody I met on Craigslist. Uh-huh. Because you don't make a ton of money as a writing fellow at the American Prospect. And that was not an ideal situation. And I was lucky to meet, you know, other young journalists over the the kind of months after that, such that I don't remember exactly how long it was after, but I moved into a group house of, you know, two other journalists and um, an education policy wonk uh, for years, um, which was just a, a real joy of a home. And uh, that for me really was like a beautiful experience that, that formed me in many ways. And I remember the... Um, easy intimacy and the atmospherics of that, right? The the way in which you would come downstairs and there'd just be somebody there who you liked. Mm-hmm. And it was okay mm-hmm. if you didn't hang out, but you also could. And that was great. Um, so I was lucky to fall into, not just fall into, I mean, helped create was one of the, you know, was we, we found a house together. But I was really lucky to fall into a situation that was much more intentional pretty quickly. Uh-huh. Is this... Um, the New Republic wrote a piece about you some years ago where they described this phase of your life as um, they rented houses together where they sat in boyish semi-filth and blogged. Is that that life phase <laughs> that you're describing? Yeah, I mean, I would say it was... Like your boyish semi-filth. <laughs> I would say it was filth, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
And you describe it as group housing as opposed to, like, getting a place with roommates who you knew. Like, did it have a—was there sort of an ethos around we are living together in a group with these sorts of intentional expectations? Like, did it have, like, a co-op feel? Were there, like, meal—you know, did you prepare meals for each other? Or was it more like you shared rent and signed a lease together? Look, you can be in a home, as you say, where you live with people or you live with people you know or you get to know. But what's happening is you're sharing rent. And that wasn't really the way of it. But it wasn't like we had a family dinner on Tuesday nights either. We just, we had a great rapport with each other. We were friends. We were in similar industries. Our friends outside of that home were the same friends. I mean, not, you know, 100%, but to a large extent. So it isn't just that we saw each other at home, but we saw each other when we went out too. And so it, it had a, a quality of living shared lives that, again, was not something that, you know, we all went out for a dinner before we moved in together and said, how do we want this to look? Well, you know, we're, we're, we're making a commitment to each other. Um, we were, all of us, just trying to find some housing at that point. But it, yeah. it, it grew in a beautiful way. How many years was it the same uh, group of people? Four, I believe. And when you left that living situation, why did you leave? I moved in with my now wife. And when you left, did you kind of acknowledge that there was a loss that was happening? I don't think when I left, I understood the loss that was happening. It's funny. I have thought a lot in later years, <laughs> these years, but, but before now that that, what a punctuated period of time that was to live with a bunch of friends in that way. And when I think about the, the arrow of time in my own life, one of the, the places where that really pierces for me is a recognition that you won't relive your early 20s trying to make it alongside a bunch of your friends in a filthy house where the back porch might collapse during any one of the parties you hold. I mean, honestly, <laughs> it's a wonder nobody died. <laughs> and that you'll have that kind of easy camaraderie and that your problems will be small and largely self-created. I mean, we were lucky, right? And I, I don't really look back on college fondly. And I don't look back on high school fondly. Uh, but I do look back on that very fondly. I mean, that was a real chosen community, chosen family situation. And I mean, it endures. I, I just moved to New York. And, you know, who did I see last weekend? But one of my roommates from, from that house. I know this feeling of loss, of having found a community with easy camaraderie, and then you leave it and miss it when it's gone. For me, that didn't happen in a post-college group house. It's been in smaller cities and rural communities, where I grew up in West Virginia, or in Wyoming, where I spend a lot of time now because my husband studies wildlife around Yellowstone. In those places, I've felt that connectedness that comes from knowing it matters, you're there. And also, like I'm known, even if it's just from spontaneous chats in the grocery store aisle. But most of the time, I live now with my family in a big metropolitan area in the San Francisco Bay Area. 
where I usually get my groceries delivered. There are a lot more economic opportunities and diverse communities to tap into, but that takes more effort, more time, and generally more money. It can be confusing, this tension between stimulation and opportunity on one side, and on the other, that feeling of interconnected care. And like Ezra, it's made me curious about other ways of building community. For him, that meant heading to the desert. At what point did you start going to Burning Man? I went to Burning Man for the first time in 2015. Oh, so not so you were married. You had mm-hmm. long passed the sort of early 20s phase. Um, oh, I was a much more serious, respectable person in my 20s than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt about that. <laughs> Burning Man, of course, is the gathering in the Nevada desert that started in the mid-80s as a pop-up campout of artists and bohemians and is now a ticketed event that attracts upwards of 80,000 people a year. Still artists and bohemians, and also celebrities, tech workers, and the Silicon Valley elite. Why did you decide to go to the desert in 2015? What were you curious about? I don't think you could have found anybody who is further away from the kind of person who would go to Burning Man than me. Uh, but my best friend from childhood, a guy named Grant, had been going for some years at that point. Not that many, but a couple of years. And Grant, in every part of our life, has been cooler, more farsighted, and more interesting than me. And I trust him completely. And even so, when he was telling me I should go to this, I did not trust him. I was like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I know what that is. You know, I've seen the pictures. But I was starting uh, Vox at that time, the sort of explanatory news site. And I was stressed out in a way I couldn't seem to come down from. So my ability to phase out of my work and rest on a weekend or at night had evaporated. But what made it, what, what, what got me to say yes was I came to realize I needed to take time off that was going to be such a shock to my system, so different than what I did day to day, that it would stop me from thinking about work. Mm -hmm. That's what got me to go. When you landed there, did you recognize it as an experiment in different ways of forming community? I think people have a lot of ideas about Burning Man. (laughs) I want to admit that up front. And I think that first, it's a very overwhelming place to be, particularly if you've never experienced anything like it. I I was not a festival goer before that. I hadn't been to Coachella or uh, really anything. And so I would say the first time I didn't, it was a little hard to think about anything at all, which was, to be fair, the point. Mm-hmm. And what was really beautiful and unusual for me about the experience was to exist for a week without any reference at all to my public personality, to my professional personality. It's interesting for being a place in which you have a, a set of social mores that tilts like 15 degrees on its axis. So it's very coherent. You can't give anybody money for anything. You can't trade things. It's gifting. Um, it's very emotionally open with people you don't know really at all. It's very participatory. Yeah. 
Did you wear different clothes? Yeah, it would have been quite weird if I had wandered. I mean, actually, in a way, it would have been amazing costuming if I had gone just sort of wandering around like I was about to appear on Hardball. Uh, and and it, it would have been like that for, for me to go, <laughs> you know, in um, jeans, a blazer, a tie, a button-down. In some ways now, I, I regret that I didn't. How many times have you been now? Uh, more than I'm prepared to admit. Uh-huh. I think the reason I ask about Burning Man is, to me, it's like this, it's just like, I, I wonder if you've thought about it as, like, an example of, like, if you come up with a totally different way of scaffolding your life, there's a way you can, like, pop something up that feels really different. Um, yeah, you and asked I fantasize about, the f- about that. Yeah, you asked <laughs> yeah. about the first time, which yeah. was a different kind of experience. Over time, yeah, it does force you to think about some of those questions. I mean, you might go people's, I think, impression of it is a big party in the desert. Not a wrong impression. The the way I tell people to think about it is it's adult summer camp. It's, it's an amazing space for building community. I mean, and that is fundamentally what it is designed for. People who go back year after year, I think, are not typically going back to party. That gets old pretty quick. They're going back for the community they've built. They're often going back to work to build things for other people because that has begun to bring them joy. I mean, you're expected to, to, to be part of things, to create things. And in that way, it's very beautiful. I mean, it has its dark sides too, as anything does. But one thing it does have is, is community. And, and you know, you have to build and then deconstruct, um, you know, these camps, these experiences with other people. And then you just live in there with them for a bit. Hmm. Sure, it comes with its responsibilities in the sense of, you know, you got to do your cooking and cleaning shifts and so on. But you're you're there without referent to a lot of your normal responsibilities. You know, if you're, you don't have your job, you don't have a Google calendar, <laughs> you're not, you, you know, unless you bring your kids, which I have not done, you're not there with your kids. So, you know, I, I've, I've seen some people go a little bit, get a little bit intoxicated by the freedom of it which I think you shouldn't overread. I don't think you can build the world that way. But but it is, you know, another thing it makes you think a lot about is what kinds of effort are motivated for people by money and which kinds of effort are motivated for people by community. Um, but of course, many things can make you think differently about that, including having a family. Coming up, Ezra talks more about fatherhood, finding support systems, and group decision-making in a family. Like, my life is braided with my partner's life. It's braided with my children's lives. And what you're trying to do also is make decisions that work best for everybody, as they are for you. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. 
Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature, hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Ezra Klein's first child was born in 2019. Their second was born two years later, in the midst of pandemic chaos. Both times, his wife Annie Lowry had really difficult pregnancies with dangerous and mysterious complications that took some time for doctors to figure out and treat. Annie's also a journalist, a staff writer for The Atlantic, and she's written quite beautifully about beginning motherhood with her own health crises and life-threatening complications. This happened to her, with Ezra beside her, unable to share those costs or fix any of them. I want to ask you about um, your experience as a father. Um, And I want to ask you about your earliest experiences of fatherhood, because um, it was really hard Um, Your wife, Annie Lowry, has written about the very difficult pregnancies she experienced, dangerous childbirth. Um, There's a piece we'll put in our show notes that she wrote in The Atlantic where she's a staff writer. Um, And I don't want to ask you necessarily to tell her experience of it, but I just, when you think about how that affected um, your earliest sense of what it was to be uh, a father and a co-parent, that you had a partner who was recovering, was having health health difficulties, um, where there were really scary things happening. Um, how do you think that shaped the way you thought about what fatherhood was going to do to you, was going to change you? I'm not sure that what it changed for me was so much my sense of being a father than being a husband. Um, the person who suffered the most in all of this was Annie. And that it was the worst thing I have gone through to watch her go through it does not like make what I went through equal to what she went through. And the birth of particularly our older son was very scary. And we were in the NICU for some time and he was very premature and very small. And so there was a tremendous amount of fear early on. We're unbelievably lucky and blessed that he's beyond healthy. But, you know, there's always a sense that it could have gone the other way. 
And I mean, it, I have a lot of thoughts following from this. It, it did something strange to me, which is it made me, I was pro-choice politically, but I'm much more, much more fundamentally pro-choice emotionally now than I used to be. What I've watched my wife go through, it is no person's right to make a person go through what she went through. It would not be safe for her to be pregnant again. The idea that there are states that would say, well, because you can't necessarily prove that you'll die, you got to roll the dice on that one. I find it um, repulsive. Not that I don't respect the thinking that goes there, but I think it's often very abstract. Um, the abstract question of fetal personhood versus the actual personhood of the parent, of the mother. Uh, it's sometimes hard for me to see these I've, I've seen people in these conversations say, oh, it's, you know, most pregnancies are fine. Something that happens when you're near, when you're the, the, the partner in a pregnancy that isn't fine, is that people come out of the woodwork to tell you about what happened to them. And at least around me, a lot of pregnancies were not fine. And a lot of people suffer tremendously and, and, and carry those scars. And I mean, sometimes I don't, that's not just psychological. Sometimes it is lifelong physical scarring. And, you know, and we had young kids, I mean, a young kid and then young kids during this period. And so there's also a, a certain set of, of difficulties being, you know, the parent who's healthy in that situation. In Ezra's life, it was a health crisis that brought this all into relief. For other families, it can be any kind of stress or breakdown in routine that reveal the limits of relying on just parents when you're raising a family. This is not how human beings raise children. And if you end up in a kind of extreme version of it, as we did, you know, unwittingly, you really realize that. And you realize also for the kids, like, they need more people around. They need people who aren't exhausted all the time around. They need people who have their heads above water. And so, like, that's a deep part of my thinking about parenting, too. Not just parenting my children, but wanting to be there for friends. Um, I don't think we're meant to do this alone. I think too much, too much can go wrong. And even when nothing has gone wrong, too much goes wrong for that to be a reasonable ask. I just believe we're living through a mistake. Hmm. And I think you see the, the consequences of that all over. I mean, I think you see it in loneliness statistics, but it's become, I mean, you know, I, I, I hear these debates sometimes, but they seem to me sometimes to be mystified. It's something completely obvious. People don't have more kids because it becomes at a certain point unimaginable how you would do that again, how you would pay for that again, how you would, you know, build your relationship through that again. And that isn't just a policy problem. It's a, it's a cultural question. But, but I, I think it should also be understood to some degree as a cultural mistake. Like, I don't think you should look at a society where we have epidemic-level loneliness, terrible levels of teenage depression, anxiety, suicidality, and a sharply declining birth rate, and a lot of people saying they're having fewer kids that they want to have, while it is the richest society the world has ever known, and think, huh, we really nailed that one. <laughs> like, something here is going wrong. Mm -hmm. I think this is a societal problem that has become individualized onto families. And the reason it can be individualized onto families is that the acute period of it passes. 
you know, when the kids become, you know, everybody's over five years old or something, you know, different families put the, the age at a different point, it gets a lot easier. And so then the pressure people might have to say, something's wrong here. We need to fix it goes away. It just, but it doesn't really pass, right? It just moved on to the next people. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, when I think about the miscalculation, like the way I think about it often is like the communities I've chosen to like live in and raise my family in um, because that's where I have thought about it. It's not, it's not only that it's like really hard to have kids who are under five um, and that's an acute period. Like, I have no doubt that as I move into my mid-40s, 50s, 60s, as I, like, struggle to build a friendship network away from, you know, where I spent a lot of my early adult life, like, I think it's going to take different forms, this lack of communal support. Um, I think it feels really acute when you have little kids, but I think about it more like, huh, like, what what do I want to try to DIY for my family um, to sort of, I don't know, like be some sort of, um, to help us help us make it through this gauntlet of big structural forces that are leading to these strains and the sense of isolation and lack of support. Um, and like, does that make sense? It does. Um, and I don't disagree with it. I just, I think the the thing I respond to or react to is the idea of it as a miscalculation. Mm-hmm. That sometimes there are, isn't a good answer to a problem because the good answer isn't there. And that's more how I see it. I don't think people have just done the equation and forgot to carry the two. <laughs> I think that yeah. what's happened is that there there isn't space to, as I said, I think that I think basically there are kind of two options right now that are easily on the table for a lot of families. One is to move near parents if the parents are well, right? I mean, and a lot of us, you know, who are having kids a bit older, their parents are getting frailer and sicker and, you know, if they're, God willing, still around. But but one is if you have a, a kind of kin network, you can be near to try to be near your network. Co-living structures for families, a place where you and your friends, right, you and your chosen family can go through this phase of life together or a later phase of life together, it is possible to do. And I know people who have done it, and I've talked to them for many hours about how they've done it. And the problem is it's really hard. And when I hear about what it takes, uh, I both there's a part of me that wants to do it and doesn't see how I would have at this phase of my life. And and it's something I think about doing at another phase of my life when maybe there is more space. What were the methods you tried to, like, bring in more support? Like, what what were the different things you tried? I mean, the main thing that we did and and do is we paid for help. And... We had a wonderful, we had wonderful nannies with both of our children. Uh, and I mean, that was the, the help we got, right? That doesn't do all that much for you on nights and weekends and mornings. <laughs> it, it really, I mean, it's really just making it possible to work. Yeah. Right. That's the kind of help you have. But there's nothing if, you know, somebody's sick at night or, you know, it's just a really hard week. 
That's, that's what I began to, to think a lot about. I mean, and also what Annie thinks a lot about, you know, when we were in San Francisco was that total lack of flow hmm. that, you know, we could schedule paid care. And, and it's worth saying very loudly that that itself is a, a huge privilege that a lot of people don't have access to. Um, you know, paid childcare is really expensive. So that you just have a, a little bit of time, I mean, every couple of weeks to be in your relationship just with each other. That's something that a lot of people just basically can't afford. I mean, that alone is expensive, right? You're not just paying for the date, you're paying for the care. And it just doesn't work. Um, they don't work then, it doesn't work now, it doesn't work for a lot of people. Is there a way that your life, after this move, that you've rejiggered your routine or your bench of available care on a regular basis that is adding some relief? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Right. You know, Annie's parents, my children's grandparents are wonderful, um, wonderful grandparents. And there is just a little bit more backup from the family. I mean, we're not all that close to each other, even so. We're still about, you know, an hour from the parents, like, you know, about that from the, the siblings or more. So, you know, these, even even when you move closer, it doesn't mean you're actually close. Yeah. But but it is a lot of help, and it is more help. Um, and it still feels, you know, day to day like we are either struggling our way through a lot of problems or buying our way out of a lot of problems. But I don't, again, like I don't consider my situation like a policy problem that needs to be solved because I have a lot of flexibility. I mean, I don't think my problem is that bad. But I do well, think there I, is a problem. Yeah, yeah. And I, I certainly think there's many problems. Um, the way I've thought about it is kind of like, I'm not sure there's a policy prescription for this. I think this is a result of the kinds of frayed communities that I've found myself living in as I'm raising my kids. And so I have, I think something that I turn around in my head a lot is like, what what are the ways that I can sort of strengthen these informal networks of, you know, mutual support? Um, and it's and it's like a weird retraining of my type A brain that for so much of my pre-parenthood life was very focused on work outcomes and, you know, kind of relationship outcomes, but really work outcomes because my husband and I were kind of doing it in tandem. And now I think, what do I want to spend time doing in order to create the kind of like family culture for my kids that I want them to have? Um and I don't always know what to do, but that's what I, I'm like, huh, should we be going to church? And then I sleep in on Sunday. <laughs> then I don't want to go to church. That sort of thing, you know? No, I agree with that. I mean, the thing that has been on my mind a lot in the last year is how important it is to a community, to community building, to ask other people for help. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really influenced by something that Alison Gopnik, who is at UC Berkeley, uh, not mm -hmm. far from you, says. Um, and she's a great philosopher and, and psychologist and has written beautiful books on parenting. But, but she's written something that I think is like the wisest thing I have read on just relationships, which is 
She says that we don't care for people because we love them. We love people because we care for them. And, and her point is that love is really built out of the performance of acts of care. Mm-hmm. Relationships are really built out of the performance of acts of care, right? Any parent knows how connecting it is to change your child's diapers, to comfort them through a night of sickness, right? It's not necessarily pleasant at every moment, but it is what builds that, that deep kind of love. And I think it's natural, certainly for me, to like have a ledger of relationships in my head and never want to be asking for more than I'm offering. And that's still most natural for me, except in, you know, the, the deepest, you know, relationships in my life, the ones that have gone far beyond that point. But, but I, I've, I've also come to think of that as a way I, um, a way anyone impedes closeness. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't really profound relationships for me that haven't at some point required people to ask a lot of me. And I've actually come to think that people asked more than I would have been comfortable asking of them. We're pretty brave for doing so. And in many cases, it created a a profound kind of closeness. And so when I, this has just become more important for me because on some level, like you're not going to have a community of people who watch each other's kids where that community doesn't already exist unless you go to somebody and say, will you watch my kids? Mm -hmm. Because I have found trying this a bunch of times that going to them and saying, I will watch your kids doesn't work. Yeah. Like they will not give you your their kids um, because they don't want to ask that. But they might watch your kids. And even so, like knowing that, believing that, I don't do it as much as I would like to. But but in terms of like how to build this kind of community of care, I've come to realize like you have to actually ask for care. And I also think it's like there's like a vulnerability in asking for help, but there's Always. also there's also kind of a um you surrender a little bit of privacy, you know? Like Especially when it comes to, like, whether it's paid care or care of people who are in your kids' lives, whether you're inviting your, you know, grandparents over into the household, you are surrendering a little bit of your, um, you know, your private space. And I think that, that that's also sometimes difficult for me. Uh, I want to keep my, my private life kind of protected in a bubble. And I would really put a distinction for me between paid care and, and the other conditions there. Because I think something that the people can afford paid care, that they're buying their way out of in a way, is the reciprocity of that relationship. I mean, you described there's a loss of privacy, and that's true, and, and loss of control, and that's true. But it's also just a kind of, you're putting yourself in, debt is too strong a word. But, you know, if you have parents or aunts and uncles or someone who's like really a, an important part of the family, like they, they have a say now. Right. And they, you know, they come with their own needs and they come with their own desires and their own views about how to do things. Uh, you know, I know no end of people who've been very happy to have in-laws in in for a bit, but then are are relieved when they head home and they they have kind of autonomy back. Right. These things are trade-offs. Um, you know, but they also require there's also, I think, a kind of beauty, and I say this as somebody who does not have other people living in my house with my family. So take it for, take my revealed and and uh, take the preference that is revealed there for what it's worth. But I have talked to people who say that you know the we are losing when you choose autonomy over and over again, you lose the skills of living in community. You lose that kind of feel for it when you 
choose the problems of being alone for the problem when when you choose the problems of being alone rather than the problems of being together you don't always realize as you're kind of looking to avoid the short-term costs of of togetherness what in the long run you're you're sacrificing like the long-term costs of of aloneness That's journalist and fellow podcaster Ezra Klein. Ezra has a new book coming out in April 2024 called Abundance, What Progress Takes, that he co-wrote with Derek Thompson. You can pre-order it now. I'm also a regular listener of Ezra's interviews, now at the New York Times and at Vox before that. And we've linked in our show notes to some episodes of the Ezra Klein show that I think are great. One with a scholar of communes and intentional communities, one with an Atlantic journalist about homelessness and the deep roots of our current housing crisis, one about why it's so hard to just hang out with friends in America today, and two interviews he's done with Alison Gopnik, the child psychologist he mentioned in our conversation. Finally, Annie Lowry's piece in The Atlantic about her experiences with pregnancy, childbirth, and early parenting are also linked in our show notes. Her essay is called, What Counts as the Life of the Mother? Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Christian Reedy. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Zoe Azoulay, Afi Yellow Duke, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Nancy Bergstrom in Chicago for being a member of Death, Sex, and Money and for supporting us with a monthly donation. Join Nancy and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. And for any future or current parents, Ezra has one more piece of wisdom to share. Kind of every phase of parenting has a little bit of the quality of that Mike Tyson line that everybody's got to plan until they get punched in the face. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. 